Good morning. Again, a warm welcome to each one who is with us this morning and those who are perhaps watching online. Um, for those who don't know, we are being streamed into a, a YouTube channel, and so you can access us uh, through that uh, if you're unable to make it on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening. Um, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 2. We're skipping ahead a little bit just because of storms and scheduling and stuff like that, um, but I'll try to synthesize some of the first stuff and, uh, and get uh, and sort of uh, apply that in because it does. I'll just read the, uh, my portion, which is from verse 1 to the end of 17 of Mark chapter 2. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. He went out again beside the sea, and the, all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to them, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, said, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. There are different versions of this story in the other Gospels, and it, those stories, it adds at the end there, it says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so this is our, our portion this morning. And so as you've seen, we're reading two stories, and we're going to cover these two stories this morning. And these are two stories, uh, the first of a believing paralytic and the second of a believing publican, which this is another name for a tax collector. And in both of these cases, um, there is a need. Both of these men have needs, and their needs are different from one another, uh, but they are real needs, and, uh, and that there's, there's layers or levels of their need some of which they may not uh, prioritize correctly, but the Lord does. 
And so this morning we hope to look at that need and how uh, the Lord Jesus is the one who can meet that need. And uh, there is, uh, that is the, and this is the wonderful truth of the gospel that we present to you this morning. That uh, many of us, we come in here this morning with many of our own individual needs. Some of them are physical needs. Some of them are emotional needs. Um, and for some, there are spiritual needs. And the wonderful story of the gospel is that it provides the answer to mankind's greatest need. Uh, uh, MacArthur has said it like this. There is one benefit that the Christian gospel offers that transcends all other benefits and leads to all other benefits. It is a benefit, frankly, that corresponds directly to man's greatest need, and that is where Christianity marks itself out from all other religions on the planet. It alone addresses man's greatest need. There are religions that offer ethics and morality and social responsibility and family values and a measure of love and peace, somewhat a measure of fulfillment, satisfaction, maybe even a certain measure of happiness. But what is man's greatest need? Man's greatest need is to escape the wrath of God that is poured out on sinners eternally in hell. The greatest need of man is to escape the wrath of God poured out eternally on sinners in hell. Only Christianity, only the Christian gospel offers a remedy that will meet that need. Only through the Christian gospel can anyone escape the wrath that God pours out on sinners. And this we will come to, but that's how I want to uh, open uh, our, this uh, message this morning. It was an excellent song choice, the song we sang this morning, that Jesus said, that if I thirst, I can come to him. No one else can satisfy, I can come to him. It also says, Jesus said that if I fear, I can come to him. If I am lost, he will come to me. The Lord recognizes us in our need and reaches out to us and provides. And so we have these two stories. In the first story, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. And this, in this story, we learn that Jesus alone has the authority to forgive sins, which is man's greatest need. And in our second story, Jesus calls a man called Levi, and this teaches us about those whose sins Jesus forgives, which is all of us. And in the summary of these two stories again, we learn that Jesus can meet our need. When our story begins here, in the beginning of the chapter, it says, uh, when he returned to Capernaum. So in the first chapter, uh, Mark very quickly and succinctly goes through the beginning of Jesus' ministry. And so Jesus uh, is, um, sorry, he, uh, he's baptized very early in the chapter. He's tempted in the, uh, in the wilderness. And then he begins his public ministry. And then the rest of the chapter talks about calling disciples and healing uh, many, including a man with a demon or an unclean spirit. And in the process of doing so, Jesus very quickly begins to gather an audience. He, is, he becomes very popular, as you can imagine one would, uh, doing these wonderful miracles and signs. And in his teaching, where he would, when he was going around and teaching, that was the thing that caught a certain number of people, many people. 
And they said in verse uh, 27 of the first chapter, after he heals the man with the demon, they say to him, and it says, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. This authority is the thing that separated Jesus from perhaps some of the others in the day who might have been masquerading as miracle workers or some sort of uh, men or, or people of God. It was his authority that he could, by way his authority that he could heal those, those individuals and, and just cleanse that man with the unclean spirit. It says in 28, his fame spread everywhere throughout the surrounding region of Galilee. And the last verse in the chapter of verse chapter says, he went out and began to talk freely about it, this one whom he healed, this leper, and, and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So uh, at the beginning of our chapter, he comes back to Capernaum. He's staying at home, and it's understood if, uh, through a reading of the Gospels that this home is likely Peter's home. This is his home base and where he's staying. Um, after he'd, you know, and after some time, after doing uh, some of these healings and with these crowds start of gathering, uh, we know that at this time Jesus went out into the wilderness and he was alone for a while and he, he, he went uh, to pray and, uh, and then he returns here to this town and very quickly news gets around. Jesus is back in town. So the crowds come together. And What's interesting about this crowd is, uh, I think it, uh, you know, if we were to look at the people who would be gathered at Jesus or Peter's house that day, uh, it would probably be a very curious crowd and a mixed crowd. There would be within that crowd some who were just interested in the, the phenomenon. Someone who was like, oh, I heard this man uh, cast out a demon. I heard he cleansed a leper. Uh, and others who... Um, would come to hear Jesus' teaching because they had heard, oh, you should hear this man speak. He speaks like no one I've ever heard before. And he has a very powerful message. He speaks of repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. That was his message. That was his teaching. Repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. And others uh, that would be uh, some of his disciples, some uh, of recent converts, people who had put their faith and trust in this one, who had been convinced that he was who uh, he claimed to be, the Son of God with power. And also at this crowd, as we will learn, is a group of religious skeptics, legalists, law-abiders, uh, very cold in heart, called the scribes of the Pharisees. And, but they're all together. They're all at this house and listening. And what is Jesus doing there? He may have been healing, but it says specifically, verse 2, he was preaching the word to them. The same message of repentance, right? Repent and believe the gospel. He's proclaiming the liberty of salvation to all who would put their faith and trust in him. And um, then we have this wonderful little story of these four men bringing their friend to the house. And if you understand sort of the way houses were built in the day. Uh, it's very easy to, to visualize. They're flat-roofed houses. There was often ladders that would go up to the roof, and they were thatched roofs with, with beams, and you could, with some work, you could break a hole in the roof, and um, you could um, make a way for them to come down. It wouldn't have been an easy task. I can imagine it would have been very disruptive to Jesus' teaching 
that, that you know, uh, dirt and mud and straw falling through uh, the floor while he's preaching. And people would probably notice this thing happening, and there would be a commotion as Jesus would be preaching. Uh, you know, it gives us a re- very real sense of that. But he, he continues to preach, but they see, and everyone sees this paralytic man, right? Uh, obvious physical uh, limitations, a physical need there. And you, you think of the, uh, the, the day and the time. There's no social safety net for a man like this. There's no uh, ease or comfort. He's, he, however he became paralyzed, whether it was early on or later, um, he becomes an invalid. He cannot provide for himself. And so we obviously can see here his immediate physical need. And his friends do a wonderful thing for him. And I, and I think that, I think we can assume correctly that, um, you know, the friends are working together and the, with the paralyzed men. So it says, we often think of the faith of the four men, but I believe that this best is understood as the faith of all five, and specifically the paralyzed men. And we have to understand the story in that too, that it wasn't, this paralyzed man was not coming against his will, but that he and the friends uh, believed that this Jesus could heal their friend. And uh, it's a wonderful story and a lesson for us, you know, about the faithfulness, faithfully caring for, loving for, providing for our friends. They cared enough that they would go to this extreme. They couldn't break through the crowd. Not a very sympathetic crowd. You'd think if they saw, you know, a paralyzed man and they're like, we're trying to get through, we're see if we can get him healed. Nobody wants to move out of the way for the paralyzed man. So they don't just say, ah, well, we tried. They go out of their way to bring this man to Jesus. I wonder if we go out of our way to bring people to Jesus, get out of our comfort zone. Oh, people are going to look at us. We're going we're to make a scene here, right? Is this, uh, our attitude should be like these four men. They want to bring this man to Jesus because they know and they believe what Jesus can do. So they bring him down through the roof, uh, and what a scene it would have been. And so when they do so, um, it's, it says in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And now that's a, an interesting thing to say, isn't it? Why doesn't he say, when he sees their faith, son, your spine is healed. Son, uh, you're no longer Uh, in this physical condition. He says instead, son, your sins are forgiven. And immediately it raises the hackles of those cold-hearted Pharisees nearby and probably others in the crowd too. Because they right away see there's something wrong here. And, And again, at this point, Jesus has likely become known to them. This one who is casting out demons and who is healing others and doing so in God's name. And so, um, and so they do not like it. He's a disruption to their, their law. He's a disruption to their system. He's not, is, he's not performing to the status quo of the way the Jews uh, are supposed to. And so, um, so they, it, they don't like it. But Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. And so, uh, after this wonderful act where these 
These four friends in faith, believing that Jesus can heal, bring their friend. Jesus sees their faith and offers healing to the man. And this kind of faith uh, is faith they could, that Jesus could see. And I think that's really interesting. He could see their faith. He could understand their faith. As faith relates to Christ in this specific context of this story, it represents a strong conviction that Jesus could meet the needs of the paralytic uh, because he, Jesus had done similar things. And so um, when Jesus says he could see their faith, he does see the faith of these four friends. But I think we need to understand this as he sees the faith of the paralytic himself. Your sins are forgiven. Not the rest, necessarily. Not, not the rest, but your sins. Jesus can see, and this is what speaks to his divinity, he can see a faith that others uh, could not see. We know and we believe and we preach that Jesus does not offer forgiveness for sins unless the sinner turns and repents of their sin. And so Jesus could see in this paralytic uh, a a spiritual faith. This was not just a, a physical healing that Jesus is offering here. It's a spiritual healing. And uh, this man believed that Jesus was the one who could offer that healing. Yes, of course the man wanted physical healing. Of course he does. Uh, but what he really needed from Jesus and wanted from Jesus was forgiveness. Um, and so um, this is that act of faith that the man, this paralytic man, uh, portrays, and Jesus sees it and understands it in, an only, in a way only uh, God in flesh could do. And he says, son, your sins are forgiven. So the Pharisees, as we said, they said that Jesus, or this man, is blaspheming. He's blaspheming, okay? Uh, he's dishonoring God. And the Pharisees believe that Jesus, here by saying such an outrageous thing, it would be dishonoring God because he's taking upon uh, himself the prerogative to forgive sins. And as they say, um, who can forgive sins but God alone? And Jesus would be dishonoring God here if he were not already God in the flesh, God incarnate. And, uh, and so, who can forgive sins but God alone? It's kind of a funny question because the answer is bingo. You got it. You're right. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus. And so, when they question in their hearts, um, what's an, another interesting mark of Jesus' divinity, of proof that he's God, is that it says there in verse 8 that he understood that they were questioning her. He perceived in his spirit, they thus questioned within themselves and said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Who else but God could do such a thing? Uh, of course, the striking irony here of uh, these Pharisees, uh, you know, um, not even being blown away by the miracle that uh, uh, was about to take place, uh, but, but rather they were, they were paralyzed themselves, spiritually par- paralyzed um, of their heart. Of their, with their own critical spirit, their lack of love, their inability to show compassion, passion, and ultimately their unbelief. It was their paralysis. I wonder if there's anyone in our audience this morning that might relate to that, to that critical spirit, that lack of love, and that hard-heartedness. You've perhaps heard the gospel before. You've heard of this Jesus uh, and of this story that he offers 
the solution, the remedy to your ultimate need, and yet there's a hardness and coldness of your heart that every time you've heard it, you've rejected it because of one reason or another. And ultimately, if you really examine it, it's your pride. I wonder if you, can, if you, um, if you would allow yourself to be compared here to these hard-hearted Pharisees. So Jesus speaks to the Pharisees, and he, asks, he, often, he speaks in a question, as often the rabbis, when they would speak to each other, would do. You would answer in the form of a question. Which is easier to say, he says. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven? Uh, rise up, sorry, which is easier to say, verse 9, to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up your bed, or rise up, take up your bed and walk? Um, so, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise up and take up your bed and walk. The implied answer is that it's easier uh, in that specific moment to say your sins are forgiven because you could just say it and there'd be no physical evidence to prove it. Uh, there's no way to verify that it actually happened. On the other hand, to say get up, take up your pallet, take up your bed, and walk out of here, uh, is uh, that's where it, the rubber hits the road. It either happens or it doesn't happen. Uh, if he does it, then it's verifiable that he is what he says he did. If he does this act, Jesus is God and not a blasphemer as they accused him to be. Uh, if he can heal a paralytic, he's God. And if he is God, the wonderful truth is that the first claim is also true. He can forgive sin. Something only God can do. Only God could do both to this man. Could physically heal his paralysis, physically heal the bones of his body, and ultimately physically uh, heal him from uh, his sin and forgive it and overrule the consequences of that sin. Namely, not, not paralysis per se, but ultimately death, which is the ultimate consequence of our sin. And so Jesus here... Um, he asks this question, and then in 10 he says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And you can hear him, or if you visualize the scene, he's just saying, So I can prove to you that I, the Son of Man, a title Jesus loves for himself, a title that comes from the Old Testament, and the Pharisees in that room knew exactly what he was doing when he used that name. He says, so that you know, so that there is no doubt, so I can prove it to you. And he turns to the paralyzed man lying there in front of him, perhaps on the floor, perhaps still in the blanket or whatever they laid him down through the roof on. And he says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately, there's that word immediately that we know we'll see throughout the reading and study of this book. He immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all. Um, this is verification of what Jesus just said. Rise, take your bed and walk. Your sins are forgiven. Both happened in that moment because of the one who said it. Jesus is no mere man. He is God in the flesh. And he is capable of doing this and more. The... The uh, 
That's the wonderful, uh, and a wonderful story. And what's the reaction of the crowd? Imagine all that crowd sitting around watching this. Imagine the, the look on the faces of the Pharisees. Uh, perhaps some of them had their cold hearts changed, but, but more likely, more than likely, they remained firm in their coldness. But some there would see this miraculous thing. Imagine the friends, their friend who had, maybe they'd known for a long time, paralyzed for perhaps as long as they'd known him, to see him physically come to life, as it were, and walk up, get up, take up his bed and walk out of that place. Imagine their rejoicing. Imagine their joy that this wonderful thing had just happened. Their friend has been healed. And the greater joy of not just the perceived need, the physical body being healed, but the greatest need, uh, the spiritual healing through Jesus offered to this man. Uh, And they say, they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What a time of rejoicing. What What a wonderful thing to be healed, not just physically, but spiritually, to uh exit the domain of darkness and death and enter into the kingdom of light to exit and leave behind a world of sin and emptiness and walk in newness of life and literally walk in newness of life because of what Jesus has done. That same offer offered to this this paralytic is offered to each one this morning. The offer of your greatest need for your sins to be forgiven, uh, is offered to you through the Lord Jesus. And then we come to our next story here in verse 13. So it's suggested that perhaps he got away from the crowds and he was heading elsewhere, and then he's coming back and he's on his way back through Capernaum again. And he's out by the sea and the crowd was coming to him. And then, uh, and it says again, what was he doing? He was teaching them. This was his His mandate, his mission, he was teaching again about the kingdom. Repent and believe. The kingdom of God is at hand. And as he's teaching them, it says in verse 14, And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. What a wonderful uh, little story. And perhaps, you know, we've probably heard this story in Sunday school or um, and heard this before, but each time there's something that the Lord can teach us when we uh, think about this story. Thinking about this man, this man Levi. In other Gospels, we know that this is uh, Matthew, the writer of the first Gospel. And so, um, and he's this man sitting at the tax booth. And there's a, there's a backstory that's... that's uh, uh, required here to understand who this Levi is, um, understanding the political and socioeconomic uh, days. The thing of the times was that, uh, you know, obviously uh, Jerusalem was, um, there was a, a Jewish government, but then it was essentially a puppet government, and the Romans were the really ones in charge, and so um, uh, they were obviously collecting taxes for, for the Romans. And so what what Levi was, Levi is a Jewish name, and he was a Jewish man collecting taxes essentially for the Roman government. And uh, that would make him the most, one of the most despised people in the whole place. It was, it was, so, it was so despicable 
to be uh, in his position. He got that position, it's understood. What he would have to have done is had some money, and he essentially uh, paid so that he could be a tax collector. And it would be a large sum of money. And so then what would happen is that he would, if he was chosen, he would get that position, and then uh, what he would do is to try to reclaim that money back, he would, he would charge the people the taxes that they owed, and then also he'd take a little off the top. Or he would add an additional part so that, he, and he could decide how much he wanted to take off. Right? So the, the Romans said, well, you've got to get this much, and he could just decide that, well, well I'm, today I'm going to ask for this much and this much. And that's how they got rich. So robbing your own people, again, uh, just adds to that. The, you can just imagine how despised and how hated a tax collector would be. So much so that the phrase, and we saw it later in the, in the verses, tax collectors and sinners, the two phrases are put together as like the ultimate lowest of the low people. You cannot get worse than tax collectors and sinners, is what they're saying here. So socially, a man... You know, I can imagine that people would, uh, couldn't even look at this man as they'd see him. They, know, they knew what he represented. They knew that he was evil and dark and twisted. And they just, you know, every day they'd have to pay this man who they knew was robbing them blind. And so um, that Jesus here, a man who was gaining this reputation as this rabbi, this teacher, this holy man, uh, as a teacher of the people, would walk past this tax collector, this lowlife, this scum, and stop and look him in the eyes and say, follow me, is an amazing thing. And it assumes that Jesus knew that this man had a changed heart. This very likely, and I believe, was not the first time that Levi would have had an interaction with Jesus. He might have seen him, might have heard his teaching, knew of him, and that there was a change happening in Levi's heart, and had happened, is understood here. Uh, the, he offers, uh, Jesus here offers an explicit command that we see is immediately obeyed. And so within that, we understand there was uh, a change. There has been a change in Levi's heart. And I assume that Levi must have been rather shocked that Jesus knew his heart, and knew what had happened to him, and so... Jesus comes alongside him, knowing who he is in the inner man, knowing the change that has been wrought in his heart, and he says, you follow me. Again, the crowds would probably literally gasp that such a thing could happen, that Jesus would bring this man into his entourage. Rabbis and teachers would have nothing to do with these people. They wanted no association with this scum of the earth, and Jesus goes out and he deliberately says, I want you to come with me. And Levi obeys. Another, in Luke, this same story is also there in chapter 5. It says that when Levi, after Jesus says, follow me, it says that he got up and followed him, leaving everything behind. All of it. All that he had been associated with, all of that, uh, the... the, the, um, Evil, all the dishonesty, all the stigma of being a tax collector, all that that internal wretchedness that he must feel every time he felt every time he woke up, knowing that what he was doing was deceitful and dishonest, and he um, leaves it all behind at the tax booth 
when he gets up and he follows Jesus. He knew, and not only that is he leaving behind, but that he knew that that old man was a wretched, condemned violator of God's law. This man knew he was a sinner, and he knew that there was nothing in and of himself that was going to get him to heaven. There was going to be nothing, you know, he knew his life. He was that, that most vile of person. He was in the right place to receive that message because he had a very acute knowledge of his need. He knew that he was wretched. He knew that he was vile. He knew there was nothing good in him. And so he was most ready to receive the news that I know what your need is and I can meet it and more. And so all that happens at that tax booth that day. In the moment, in that moment, all the things that he had been controlled by or trapped by or, or just uh, um, wrapped up in had lost their meaning and their grip. Likely, and we can imagine, the grip of riches. He was probably a very wealthy man or doing quite well for himself. And so uh, even that, he let everything go and recognized that that stuff, all that worldly stuff, means nothing. It is, it's emptiness. It's futile. It's grasping at the wind. And he wanted rather to follow Jesus. So he loses a career, he loses material possessions, and he gains heaven, and he gains eternal glory in that exchange. And what an exchange. So they go back to Levi's house then, and this is a wonderful thing. This is the evidence of a changed man. That, Jesus, that Levi says, come on back to my place. And it probably was a nice house that he had probably acquired through his dishonest gain. And the, he hosts a lavish meal to honor Jesus. And that's where our, public, our Pharisees come back again, probably following at a distance. And they see this, this incredible thing happening. A supposed teacher of the law, uh, this, this righteous man, eating with tax collectors and sinners, associating with this scum, these lowlifes, unheard of. And yet, Jesus sits and he fellowships and he eats with them. What a wonderful, uh, th- what a wonderful picture. And so, again, he sa- they say this thing and they say, uh, in verse 16, the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the tax collectors and sinners, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? So Jesus goes right to them and addresses the heart of the issue. He said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. Now, the, we know that the Pharisees are sick people. They had that sickness, that coldness of heart. They did not want to believe that Jesus was who he said he was. But in their own hearts, they felt they were the well ones. Right? That's why he's, Jesus is saying, those who are well don't need, they don't recognize, oh, I'm sick. Right? They think they, they're fine. They, you know, to relate it to you, perhaps you or me, we may think, oh, I'm a, I'm a great person. I, I do all things honorably, and I'm, uh, I have lots of uh, you know, charities that I give to, and I, you know, I try to lead a good life, and I, I'm helpful, and I volunteer at these organizations. I don't need a Savior. I don't need my sins forgiven. So this is what Jesus is saying here. Those who are well, who think that they're well, they're not going to go and ask for a doctor. But those who are sick. 
So, and then he aligns it here um, when he says, um, and, he, and he speaks to this place from a place of authority. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is saying, in effect here, I'm the physician. I'm the healer of the sick. And I can, and I will heal those who want to be made well. Jesus and his other healings in the Gospels, we hear him, do you want to be made well, he would ask. And those who did, he would heal. Uh, Jesus did not come to call those who think that they are righteous, the self-righteous, the ones who think, uh, I don't need um, a Savior. But of course the answer is that you do. You do need a Savior. And so the appeal is to you to, uh, in humility, to cast your pride aside and to recognize that you, yes, you need to be saved from your sin. You are a sinner. The Word of God declares it. Your own conscience declares it. That you, uh, if you have not accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you are far from God. And so, uh, Jesus is that physician. He is that healer who offers you um, what your greatest need is. Um, And so, he does not call the righteous, but sinners. You, by... uh, what we ought to do here, and what, what Matthew has done here, is that he was able to acknowledge his, uh, his need. Uh, he was able to acknowledge and accept Christ's diagnosis of his own heart. A heart that was empty. A heart that was sinful. A heart that was evil. And he was also willing to accept his healing. And so, you and I today, the church today, is made up, and lest you think that we're, you know, that's all just uh, good, right people who have everything going for us here, if you're new here, not been here before. The church today is made up of bad people, not good people. The people who have attained, uh, we're not people who have attained a certain level of status with God. Uh, we're not people who think we're good, but we're people who know that we're wicked. We're not righteous in and of ourselves, but we have uh, the righteousness of God given to us, placed on us. Jesus welcomes here the sinners. He welcomes the penitent, the ones who acknowledge in humility of heart, there's nothing I have to offer. There's nothing I have to give. I have a need and only you can fill it. And so uh, we understand and we know from the word of God that tells us that Christ died for the ungodly. And if you would recognize your place this morning as the ungodly, as far from God, in need of a Savior, he welcomes you. And he does so uh, freely today. So we have two stories here. The story of a paralyzed man, a physical need, perceived that's, perhaps the friends initially thought that's his greatest need. Jesus understood his greatest need was his spiritual healing. And Jesus is able to heal because he is God. He has the ultimate authority because he is God. In the second story, Jesus heals Levi. And this teaches us whose sins he forgives, those who are sick. We're all sick with a disease called sin. And Jesus is the great physician. 
And those who admit it and turn to him, he will, be, he will heal and he will cleanse. And so, as I said at the beginning, Christianity is the only religion that offers a solution to mankind's greatest need. In and of ourselves, we are sinners. We are far from God. But God offers a remedy uh, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity, the Lord Jesus Christ, and his death on the cross for you offers that great benefit, the forgiveness of sins. And I'm going to close with a quote again. How can he do that? How can God offer that? He can do it because his justice has been satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ, who is a substitute for the sinner, who dies in your place, in the sinner's place. All the sins of those who uh, repent and believe were placed on Christ. All the sins of all mankind from all eternity have been placed on Christ, and he's bore them. And if you accept Christ's substitutionary death in your place, you can be forgiven, and you can escape the consequence, which is an eternity in hell. Scripture is very clear that only God can do this. The one who is the judge and the lawgiver, God is the one who was offended and the only one who can forgive. We talked a lot this morning about forgiveness in our first meeting. That God can offer this forgiveness, this healing. The glory of the gospel is that God does not give salvation to ones who earn it or achieve it or to the people who are good enough or righteous enough or holy enough, but he gives it to the ungodly, the unholy, and the unrighteous who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And we trust this morning that if that's you, that you would just, even in your own seat this morning, simply accept this good news and, uh, and before God, just admit your sin and that you uh, acknowledge that Jesus died in, in your place and his death on the cross was sufficient uh, to pay the penalty for your sin. Uh, and we trust if you do that this morning, and we know that if you do that this morning, you will be saved. God and Father, we just thank you for uh, your word this morning. We thank you for the testimony of these two men and how that uh, the Lord Jesus heals. He, he heals uh, this man of his physical um, sickness, as, uh, of his um, paralysis, but he ultimately, because he is God, because of what he did on the cross for us, he can heal this man spiritually, and he can heal, and the offer of healing goes out to all, that all who would put their faith and trust in Christ can be uh, spiritually healed this morning. We thank you that the Lord Jesus is interested in the lowest of the low, uh, the ones who uh, perhaps the rest of society would consider the outcast, the rejected ones, the ones who, um, who, um, are, who have nothing to cling to, who recognize there's nothing good in and of themselves, those are the ones that Jesus reaches out uh, and offers salvation to. So, Father, we just pray again. Uh, we just thank you for the gospel, and we just pray that uh, there would be any who would hear this morning, that they would simply accept this good news. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm.